Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of our listeners, wherever you are on the planet. This is World Smart, a podcast of the Aaron Fox Law Firm. We are your hosts and Aaron Fox International Practice Group co-chairs. I'm Hunter Carter. And I'm Malcolm McNeil, and we'll be talking with partners, other lawyers, special guests about topics of interest in the law of international business and international business. Well, Malcolm, we have with us today someone I'm very happy that we're going to be able to spend a few minutes talking about international trade with. Kay Georgie leads Aaron Fox's International Trade Group, and she has more than 30 years of experience advising clients on all aspects of international trade, export controls and sanctions on FCPA and customs matters. She's ranked as one of the nation's leading international trade lawyers by chambers, and it is such a great pleasure and a source of pride for me to have Kay as a partner and to learn from her about her exciting practice. Kay, thank you for joining us for this. And I think you know this, Kay, but you know one of the reasons why I joined Aaron Fox many years ago was because of the strength of the trade colleagues and particularly you. And I've had the pleasure and honor and fun of working with you on trade matters since my earliest days at the firm. And I've been dying to ask you a question. We've been too busy with work, so I've not asked you the more personal question, which is how did you get involved in international trade? practice. Well, thanks, Malcolm and Hunter. And it's really exciting to be here with you two guys and talking about my past. This is my distant past, so keep in mind, because it was in another century long, long ago that I started in the D.C. office of an international law firm called Kudair Brothers, which used to be in existence and sadly has passed away. And when I joined the D.C. office of Kudair Brothers, what the office did primarily was international trade. So that's what I did. That's what they were doing. So that's what I did. They were doing anti-dumping cases. They were doing countervailing duty cases. So did a lot of that. And then I slowly morphed into my current practice, which is export controls and economic sanctions in about the mid-1990s. And really the practice took off in the late 1990s and with 9-11 has been going strong ever since then. But yeah, it was part of my joining Kudair Brothers and the Kudair Brothers International Trade Practice. Wonderful. Let's talk about the present day since we've talked about the historical background. We know that during COVID, your team has been even busier than what they normally are in a non-COVID time. Why don't you tell our listeners what types of matters came in during COVID and also to what extent your practice had to pivot? We, we know you had to pivot into different directions depending upon what was happening. And what were those directions and how was it challenging? Well, there was a little bit of pivoting that went on at the beginning because I think, and everybody experienced it in their own practices, there was a, a kind of a lull in March and April, wasn't there? There was sort of like, oh, oh no, what next, right? But what was happening at the time, one of the ways we pivoted, a major set of export restrictions that went around the world on masks and other personal protective equipment. So, you know, countries around the world put in these, these tight regimes because they were really worried that their hospitals wouldn't have PPE and the hospitals wouldn't have other important supplies. So one of the things we did is we created a chart tracking all of those export control restrictions around the world and started sending out alerts as they changed because they came in this gigantic wave initially. And there's a bunch of trade work came out of that. And we got into the whole COVID testing area and the COVID export control area. So that was one of the areas. Other things just continued on, like the U.S.-China trade war. That was a continuing factor. Um, so that was didn't really change that much in COVID times. It was just a continuation of the same. But that was one of the one example of a pivot that we did. The USMCA, 
the, the Trump administration was able to finalize that and a large portion of our customs work, not all of it, because we do a lot of customs work in a lot of different areas, but we've been very active in USMCA, particularly in the automotive sector and helping auto parts suppliers with USMCA issues. Well, USMCA, you're talking my language because, as you know, I focus some of my practice on serving clients in Latin America. And I have noticed in talking with my friends in Mexico that it seems that, you know, to untrained eye, the USMCA as a replacement for a NAFTA seems like more of the same, but a little better. Or is it different? What do you see? So I'm probably not the best person to talk about what's different under USMCA. That's my colleagues, Dave Hamill and Angela Santos have been really working on that. But I would say that I think the USMCA did make some really important changes in the customs area and in country of origin and also in the labor rules. And I think that it has been a change and an adjustment, both the U.S. attempting to keep more jobs here in the United States and have tougher restrictions on making sure that things are really made in one of the three USMCA countries. So it has been certainly a fair amount of business in this area, a fair amount of compliance business, and that will continue to grow. I mean, there was a huge growth of work in the customs area after NAFTA Part 1. <laughs> and so NAFTA Part 2, the USMCA is creating another groundswell. We had the pleasure of having Angela on one of our earlier podcasts, and she talked to us a lot about the forced labor rules and things. It's very interesting. It seems that the overall area of export controls and sanctions has broadened considerably, I should imagine, over the time that you've been working on it, is much more a tool of politics, perhaps, than it was at an earlier time. Is that a fair observation? That is 100% correct, yes. So another growth area in COVID times has really been, I mentioned the U.S.-China trade war, but there's also U.S.-China sanctions war, which has been sanctioning in terms of both the forced and the forced labor, because Angela has been sort of focused on the custom side of forced labor. We've been more focused on the export control and economic sanctions part of forced labor, because at the same time that Customs and Border Protection is putting these WR orders on imports that they believe were made using forced labor, the OFAC. The Office of Foreign Assets Control has put companies and entities on the SDN list for their role in forced labor. And Department of Commerce has put entities on the entity list for supporting roles. So companies supplying to forced labor situations in China. So the challenge for U.S. exporters is, of course, complying with all this and complying with the Huawei sanctions, which have been another area of huge work for us, just helping U.S. companies figure out the special foreign direct product rules applicable to Huawei. Now you talk about Asia. Now you're talking about my backyard in terms of the practice. So you get yep. me eager to jump in. The issue that I've been having, and by the way, thank you. I want to thank you and your team for the alerts that you've been putting out because I've been taking your alerts and not just posting them on LinkedIn and getting a lot of comments, but I've also been forwarding them to clients who I think can benefit from that and to trigger some thinking so they would call us for consultation. And the response from the Chinese side has been that they expected some massive revolutionary change in U.S. policy after Trump once Biden was elected. And I don't think there has been. And from their perspective, they don't think there's been any change. What is the view from the trade side? Has there been a, I mean, there may be a change in tone, I understand, but what about the practicalities of it? 
I don't think there has been the same degree of change that many of us expected, really. I think even in the sanctions area, the Biden administration has rolled back some sanctions programs, such as the International Criminal Court sanctions, which was a fine rollback in my personal view. But, you know, a lot of the other sanctions haven't been rolled back. I mean, there really hasn't been any change at all, for example, in the Huawei entity list sanctions, not even in the licensing. So, you know, we have licenses for exporters outstanding with no action taken taken for months and months and months. I mean, I get a list from one of my colleagues of everything that's sitting out there. And like, oh, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that thing is still sitting out there. And no action. And where there is action, what the action is, is denials. First intent to denies, we file something with BAS explaining why, no, this is not 5G. This is not nothing related to 5G, nothing having to do with 5G. Then we get the denial because we haven't proven that it's not 5G. And so it's subject to an intent to deny. Then we file the appeal. So that whole process is ongoing and it hasn't changed at all. And when there's any hint by any nominee from the Biden administration that they might even look at it again, then there's a big hullabaloo in Congress that the administration is going light on China. So there were developments at USTR, I guess there was a major speech about tariffs on China and the China trade war. And the takeaway in the business press has seemed to be something along the lines of it was a big speech, but not a big speech. Because rather than dropping the Trump administration approach to using tariffs as a trade war, they're largely remaining in place. Is that a fair takeaway? That is a fair takeaway based on my reading. Um, my reading is the administration. I'm not criticizing the administration by no means. I mean, they have a bargaining tool. And so why would you throw away a bargaining tool before you actually get something in exchange for it? So I think that's sort of the thought along there. On the other hand, there is a cost to all of this. There is a cost to the China tariffs, to U.S. companies that import from China. There's a cost to the Huawei rule, to companies that have U.S. technology and products based on U.S. technology that can't sell to a huge market. So there's a chilling effect on U.S. companies doing trade. So there's a cost. There's a cost to companies of also trying to just get exceptions to those tariffs. So you've talked to us about that somewhat in the past. Where does that process stand? Are companies still able to get relief from the burdens, you know, U.S. importing companies from the burdens of the tariffs? So I haven't seen anything recently, but in the past, we filed many, 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 many requests for exceptions. And there wasn't really a lot of rhyme and reason in what was granted and what was denied. Sometimes you'd have a very similar thing from the same company that was granted and something very similar that was denied. So I think the process had some problems with it, which I think the administration has acknowledged as well, the current administration. And it really needs to be looked at more seriously. And if we're going to keep the tariffs, there needs to be a way of getting relief for U.S. companies that really need it. You mentioned, I want to come back to this, the International Criminal Court sanctions. Tell us more about that. So these were sanctions imposed on persons in the International Criminal Court because there was a perception in the prior administration that the ICC was unfairly targeting actions or activities that the U.S government forces had undertaken overseas. So that was sanctions put on certain individuals of the ICC that the Biden administration rolled back. So there's been a degree of American resistance to accepting the International Criminal Court and the Statute of Rome. And indeed, it has been a system or process whereby foreign actors can try to bring American actors under scrutiny in that process. We don't like people judging us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think nobody likes to be judged. Nobody likes to be judged. judged Nobody likes to be judged. But the ICC does play a very significant role in almost day to day in numerous countries. I know from the transitional justice 
situation in Colombia, how important it is, the consultations that have occurred with the ICC prosecutors, both during the peace process and afterwards, to understand the degree to which resolution of the internal conflict could be reached in such a way that didn't derogate from statute, treaty standards, and that sort of thing. But it seems to me that the U.S. government's resistance to joining the Rome Statute became open hostility to the court itself with those sanctions. Is that chapter closed? Hunter, I hope so. I don't know that for a fact. I think the U.S. still has a little bit of a feeling like we're not at fault. The ICC should be judging other people. And the same with, you know, the WTO appellate body had all the issues with the U.S. blocking of the WTO appellate body nominee so that, you know, no one could actually, so the appellate body couldn't couldn't function. It's the same thing. You know, we don't like the results against ourselves, so therefore we're going to make it impossible for everybody. I'm hoping that chapter is somewhat behind us. I'm curious about your perspective about how legal issues like sanctions, implementation, so forth, intersect with politics. All of a sudden, a change of administration or policy or a foreign actor's actions can, at a political level, cause sanctions to have to come into play. And you're the one who has to help the client figure out, the client companies figure out how to navigate those. It must be an extremely frustrating and constantly changing environment for that reason. How do you keep a good sense of humor? <laughs> well, some of the some of the things I see out there are kind of funny, so I, I, you got to laugh at them a little bit, right? <laughs> well, I think in the sanctions area and in export control too, because export control has been used much more frequently as a, an indirect way of sanctioning, the use of the entity list to sanction. I think you just have to stay on your toes because as different companies and entities around the world get sanctioned, you have to be prepared to help the client who you know may have a sole source of supply of a Chinese company that goes on the SDN list. You just have to be in there rooting for them and trying to get them licenses so that they can continue their business until they get another source of supply. But I think there's also a counseling role, I think, for international trade attorneys. And that is sort of helping clients assess risk. Angela, I'm sure I talked about this with the forced labor is really now it's so important for clients to understand their supply chain and analyze it for sources of risks from an environmental perspective, from a forced labor perspective, because that's what's coming down the pike. And unless they have those controls in their system, they could easily be hit by catastrophe from a business perspective that then they'll have to get over. I think you actually stole a little bit of my thunder just then, Kay, because I was just about to ask, if a client walks in today who's entering the international trade environment, what is on that consultation checklist? And you've just knocked off a couple and environment sanctions. How would you approach, a, let's say, an initial interview with a client that's entering this field or who's in the field saying, I want to make sure I'm in compliance? Well, frankly, I don't get that many complete newbies who, you know, are, have only been in the bottom of their garage in Pittsburgh or Southern <laughs> California and haven't been out yet. So it's a, a new question. But I mean, the things are the tr traditional things in addition to making sure that you're dealing with other companies that are responsible from a corporate governance perspective and from a corporate social perspective and, and environmental forced labor perspective, you know, you need to make sure that you have a system for complying with all the different trade laws, the import laws, the export laws, the foreign corrupt practices, the anti-corruption laws, really a big thing. So putting in a place a system so you know who you're dealing with, both on the vendor's side and also on the customer side, goes a long way to making sure you're in compliance. You know, what I've told clients is in the simplistic terms is you have to make sure that you can demonstrate to somebody that you know who your customer is or who your vendor is, take the appropriate due diligence. 
Yeah, it's KYC and also having a relatively high standard, not taking, you know, just anybody who walks in the door. Quick question. We've been talking about prospective or things that have happened in the past. We've been talking about the present. What are the trade issues coming up in the future? Are there any trade agreements looming? Are there any potential major trade changes? Anything that we should be looking at or clients should be anticipating in their future business planning? Well, I'm hoping that the U.S. gets back into the trade agreement area. Certainly, they have trade agreements they could do with some other major trading partners. And I think there are other countries out there really looking to trade with the U.S. So I'm hoping that the U.S. gets more active in that area. Also, that you know we can get back into the multilateral trade agreement area. So those are some areas that I'm hoping will improve. Other areas, I think from my practice, uh, it's still a, a large bit. China and economic sanctions is going to be a continuing issue. Forced labor is going to be a continuing issue. So a lot of the things we already mentioned. Do you cross-pollinate the work periodically, say, with our sovereign group or with our government relations group? Do we have any regular connections internally? Because I know we have strength in all of those issues. How do we work internally on that? I sort of know, but for our listeners, I thought you could give a uh, little overview. So we work all the time with our government relations group. Phil English, for example, is a great source of information for my clients. He can tell my clients what's coming down on trade and taxation issues on the Hill. And we work with it. It goes both ways. I mean, we also handle issues for our government relations colleagues when they have a particular client who has a particular, say, an economic sanctions issue, for example. With respect to the sovereign relations, obviously, sovereign governments have issues related to trade and export controls and economic sanctions all the time. So we work with them as well. I'd be remiss, Kay, if I didn't ask a probing question a little bit on your thoughts about future trade agreement prospects. President Lasso of Ecuador was recently in New York for the UN General Assembly, and I was present at a luncheon where he spoke greatly about how he, who comes from a somewhat different political legacy in his country, wants to get back to having more of the world in Ecuador and more of Ecuador in the world, and particularly wants to negotiate a free trade agreement with the United States so that then Colombia, Chile, Peru, and Ecuador will all have trade agreements to be able to join a Pacific trading bloc together along with Mexico. He makes a good case. What are his prospects? I would think the Biden administration would want to take on some of these free trade agreements. And Ecuador is a perfect example of a country that would seem to me to be ripe for a free trade agreement. But I think right now there may be and I'm I'm speculating is that, you know, the Biden administration has other fish to fry in the immediate future. They have to deal with <laughs> with keeping the government open, trying for their stimulus bills. So unfortunately, I think some of these really important trade issues that could actually boost the economy, such as free trade agreements, are taking it back. You got me laughing when you said other fish to fry because Ecuador is one of many Pacific Coast uh, countries with the significant fishing interests and issues. And indeed, one of the best arguments for a free trade agreement, I think, has to do with supporting the fishing industry there. And it's a relatively small country. But when you speak of fishing and sanctions, it calls to mind that there have been reports, including a really lengthy one in the Wall Street Journal this week, about Chinese fleets illegally fishing in the waters off South America. Is there anything the U.S. can do to help those countries from the point of view of sanctions in resisting that problem? We don't have any <laughs> executive order allowing us to impose sanctions on companies, entities doing illegal fishing. That said, it's certainly an area, you know, if you, you could tie it with it within other conduct, for example, you know, if the fishing was somehow tied to territorial expansion that U.S. government thinks is illegal. 
maybe or that perhaps environment, perhaps environmental issues. Environmental, but that's not currently. It's not something. You, so the way you impose sanctions typically is you have either a law passed by Congress and signed by the president saying we can sanction for X, or you have an executive order based usually on IEPA, which is the International Economic Emergency Powers Act, saying that this is an economic emergency, right? It's supposed to be a big deal. I'm not saying that illegal fishing isn't something that is very serious, but it's not something that has been called out. The major expansion in this area came out of the Magnitsky Act. It's called uh, the Global Magnitsky Sanctions or GLOMAG Sanctions, and that's for human rights abuses. It's for corruption. So there is a precedent in moving from like a more political sanctions base, like a country base, to something more specific in the social area, the the human rights abuse area and the anti-corruption area. But it hasn't been expanded to environmental yet. So be kind of an interesting one to look into. It would be a way of handling it. And because, you know, we're using economic sanctions right now with respect to oil. So, you know, if a vessel gets involved taking oil from, say, Venezuela to Iran or Iran to Venezuela, you can put that vessel on the sanctions list and the company that owns and operates the vessel on the sanctions list. So you could have something similar in the fishing area. So, Hunter, I think you've come up with a new idea. Well, it's uh, fishing and it's food for thought, if I can use that pun. <laughs> yes. um, I have been asked from time to time by people, including from Chilean authorities and, and businesses, whether the Chinese fleet can legally do business with onshore services in Ecuador, for example, where they have been followed to port from time to time, either to offload fish or to take on fuel or that water, that sort of thing. And we'll have to continue that conversation maybe offline. But I know that there's a great deal of interest in it. This uh, the the article. I, I'm trying to remember now whether it was the AP or the Wall Street Journal that ran it. I think it was the AP. Josh Goodman. But it, it's really getting more attention. I know from Chilean government authorities that they have used their air force, among other things, to track the fleets when they fish around, say, the Easter Island area, which is a, a Chilean island, and then the fleet moves north and goes into Ecuador and so forth. So there's a a great deal of interest from our South American partners on that subject. Well, we'll have to continue that conversation another time. Malcolm, anything before we wrap up? Sure. Well, I, I Just to comment on that, by the way, because I was called by a news organization for a comment on a recent story. It's actually made its way through the media on the President Xi's recent pronouncement that they're not going to use international laws as much for a shield, but more as a sword, and that they're going to become more aggressive in jurisdictions to initiate litigation. And I'll speak as somebody who's been going to China since the early 90s, that it has been a case of China shying away from litigation and wanting to avoid international disputes. And that's been one of the hotbeds in arbitration. But now it's looking like at least President Xi's pronouncement, if it's to be taken at face value, that he's going to be advising the Ministry of Justice to take these cases or to take the cases to the jurisdiction where he thinks that that China can get an expansionist policy in whatever the area may be. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where those two intersect, Hunter. Without a doubt. And I actually just found the reference. I want to make sure for the record I was fair uh, to the authors of the article. It's the AP and Univision our friends at Univision who ran the article, and I highly recommend it. It came out on the 24th of September. Well, as we say, that's all we have for today, but what a fascinating area in which you work, Kate. It's just a delight to have you on our podcast today. Any last comments before we sign off? Well, 
just to add on that, it is a fun area to practice. And that's why after, you know, a mere 32 years at doing it, it's, it's still fun. You know, it's still fun because it's always something different. And now Hunter's given me this new idea, an executive order on illegal fishing. Um, I'm sure that, that will make a lot of people unhappy <laughs> around the world, but it's a cool area. And there's always something new and different that's happening that you haven't thought of before. And so it keeps you, it keeps you young. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was a lot of fun. Our pleasure to have you. Malcolm, until next time. Until next time. Great getting to know you even better, Kay. Have a great rest of your day.